Good evening, everyone. My name is Simon Barrett, and this is another edition of Journey into Justice with Bello and Barrett. This week on the program, attorney and author Mark Bello and I are joined by uh, another attorney, um, a veteran, uh, J.R. Whaley. Um, Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here again. And J.R., um, it is splendid to have you with us uh, this week. Thank, thank you, Simon. Good to be with you and Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to to, to, to spend a little bit of time with y'all. I promise the people the best. Um, I promise the people the best of the best, Simon, and you've got the best here. <laughs> Actually, it, it was around this time last week that uh, um, Mark and I uh, were on the air, and. Um, the, the subject of uh, the uh, opioid crisis came up um, because it was exactly a week ago that uh, the um, uh, ruling came down in the Oklahoma case against uh, Johnson & Johnson where, uh, right. where the, the, the judge ruled that uh, J&J had been uh, naughty boys and um, slapped them with a $572 million fine. Um, now, we all know that uh, um, uh, J&J are appealing the uh, verdict, and uh, this is by no means the end of the story. Oklahoma's just one state, and... Uh, as far as I can tell, um, this, this fine was merely uh, for year one reparations. So uh, there, there's a lot more uh, legs in this story. The, the question I have is, are we really looking at uh, a replay of the big tobacco story? Um, JR, you're... You're involved in uh, in, in this uh, litigation. Um, give give us the uh, thumbnail sketch of what's going on. Sure. Well, Simon, like like you you mentioned, this is a, a, a huge litigation that is really impacting all of our citizens. And when you think about the scope of the problem, just to put it in in perspective. Um, about 115 people a day, a day, die of opiate um, overdoses. And so the emotional and, um, um, you know, spiritual and economic costs of this uh, crisis that our country is in is really unfathomable. And so beginning several years ago, the, the litigation began, it, it, it began somewhat from an individual perspective where some lawyers had um, um, started litigating on behalf of individuals who had become addicted to opiates primarily 
because of prescriptions. And we all kind of remember back, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so that it seems like you would go and get, get a tooth pulled and you get a 30-day supply of oxycodone or, or oxycontin. And it was just, it, that was really the beginning of it. And there's, there's, there's a reason why that, uh, why that happened. It was a very focused and directed marketing attempts by the manufacturers to create a market for treatment of pain. And it resulted in a lot of people becoming addicted to these opiates. And then they have um, um, morphed into um, not only prescription, but also fentanyl and also heroin. And so when you, when you think about how the process and how the problem really began back in that time and where it is now with 115 people a day dying, it's, it's unfathomable. So you asked about the litigation. Essentially, there are a, a few different players um, in the litigation, Simon, um, um, in different venues, in different places where they're suing. You mentioned Oklahoma earlier, Oklahoma, um, and also um, the majority of other states are involved in litigation against <clears throat> the manufacturers as well as the distributors, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But Chair, can, I, can cases, I stop you a second? Yeah, Chair, sure. Uh, I, I want to I clarify something so, so the public understands what we're talking about. You mentioned opioids or opiates. Can you tell us the name brand drugs that people uh, are taking that are the subject of this litigation? Well, you know, primarily what the ones that we've heard about, um, um, all heard about is OxyContin, Oxycodone, Hydrocodone, thing, uh, thing, things of, 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 of uh, things like that um, that are do pain they, do they relievers. Have, do they have other common names? Um. Those are those primarily are the ones, Mark, that are, have okay. been been um, subject of, of most of the prescriptions. Um, so you know all of the oxycodone and hydrocodone and oxycontins and th those are primarily the ones that have been uh, most popularly prescribed. And, and I think you're about to get into this, but I I just want the public to be to understand that. Oklahoma, while it's a substantial judgment, and we'll talk about the judgment and, and how sustainable it is, it's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, this litigation is going to be happening all over the country, is it not? Yeah, no, it, it, it is happening all over the country, and Oklahoma was the nation's first opioid crisis trial. Um, and and so if, you're that some, was the if you're somebody, I'm sorry. If you're somebody that is that is suffering from opioid addiction, or you're the loved one of someone who, uh, God forbid, has has uh, died as a result of uh, taking opioids or over over uh, over what's the word? What's the word? I'm, I, I'm just an overdose. Overdosing. Yeah. Overdosing on on opioids, um, uh, you're not shut out anywhere in the country. This is, this is a national uh, piece of litigation 
and these are national problems, correct? Yeah, it's it's really amazing. It cuts across all geographic lines, all socioeconomic lines. Um, any other way that we try to divide ourselves in the in this uh, country, um, this crisis really cuts through all of that, and and um, everyone everyone is affected, and everyone has. It seems like either you know someone. Um, in your family or you have friends that have, like you said, either lost people to overdoses or to addiction. And it's just a, it's a, it's an incredible epidemic that the government has, has claimed as a health, uh, as a healthcare crisis in our country. And what type of claims are being made? Uh, you meant, I think you mentioned that, I guess yeah. my question is: Oklahoma is, is a was a was a lawsuit filed by the government against I think two manufacturers. One settled and one did not. Right? That's right. The maker or, it, or uh, were Purdue, there more? Purdue Pharma uh, settled with Oklahoma a couple of weeks before trial for about two hundred and seventy-four million dollars. Um, Purdue Pharma is the company that's owned by the Sackler family, and they are the ones that began selling and marketing OxyContin in a very aggressive way and um, are really pointed to as the ones who began this marketing effort to make opiates or opioids um, very accessible for treatment of pain. And if the the Oklahoma – go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then um, uh, J&J also was a defendant in the Oklahoma case. So I think maybe it would be helpful just to kind of talk about who is making the claims um, for what and what, you know, what really the goal of the litigation is. Um, That's about what I was was just going to ask you, in in Oklahoma for now. Um, Yeah, and so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that when we have gone to interview and, and I guess be interviewed by um, different government agencies, whether that be counties, whether that be cities, whether that be uh, even hospitals or risk funds, um, because all of those entities have different types of claims as well as the states. Um, one, of the, one of the claims that those governmental entities have are the, the costs of um, treatment facilities, the costs for uh, actual payment of drugs to um, bring people back from overdoses, uh, Narcan, Naloxone, uh, or, or is, is that drug that, that, is, that is spent. So um, there are costs that governments have incurred as a result of the opioid crisis. And um, what, what we do when we visit with our clients is, is, is we say, you know, look, if you, if you put a line uh, down a sheet of paper and on the left side of the line, just write all of the costs that you've incurred, increased law enforcement costs, increased coroner costs, increased hospitalization costs, impre- increased costs for uninsured folks that, that overdose that you have to care for, uh, treatment facilities that you've had to tr- uh, um, fund, detox services to help people um, medically detox from these opiates. Whatever those costs are, they're very significant. 
if you put those on the left side of the paper, and then on the right side of the paper, write what it would cost and what you would do to cure the problem, to abate the problem, <coughs> to make sure that your community is, is, is healthy again. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's not enough money in the world um, to, to satisfy both sides of, of, of that sheet of paper. Um, to, to pay back all the costs and to also pay for the treatment going forward. And so one of the claims, and, and, and particularly we can talk about Oklahoma, but also um, you know, the, the claims that are coming up um, are about that right side of the paper. What does it cost to abate the problem? And that's a fancy legal word just to say, what does it cost to cure the problem? You know what? 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 How much money, and where can it be spent to make sure that the folks that are sick get the treatment that they need, and our communities become healthy again? And so, generally, those are the claims that are made by the governmental agencies. The the governmental agencies might be the states. Um, the majority of states in our country have filed suit um, against various defendants. Also, counties and cities have filed suit. Um, also, hospitals and unions and other risk funds that have incurred costs as a result of the opioid crisis have also filed suit. And so there's a, there's, there's a lot of litigation that has been filed, a lot of lawsuits that have been filed. The states, the Oklahoma uh, suit or the Mississippi suit or the Louisiana suit or um, the, the, the variety of other lawsuits that are filed by the states have been filed in state court. And so we mentioned the, we've, we mentioned the Oklahoma case a couple of times. That was in Oklahoma state court. The vast majority of county and cities and union and hospital cases are um, currently consolidated in front of one judge, one federal judge in Ohio. And um, Judge Polster is his name, and he oversees what's called the MDL, the multi-district litigation. And all that means is, is that when you have different suits filed throughout the country in different federal courts, there's a, there's a, a mechanism to where all of those suits are are essentially taken and placed in front of one judge for pre-trial discovery and resolution of, of 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 those issues. So that's what that's that's what has happened to most of the county and most of the city cases. Those are those are centered now and in, in, in front of a judge in Ohio. And um, that judge is going to oversee the first MDL trial uh, beginning October 21st, and that's um, on behalf of Summit County, which is the, the, the county uh, around Akron, and then um, Cahuga County, which is the uh, county around Cleveland. So that, that's going to be the second trial. Oklahoma was the first, but these will be county trials that will be in front of the MDL judge uh, next month. Now, just, now can, just can to I, make sure the can public I understand. Just clarify something real quick here. Go ahead. Um, sure. So, um, the Oklahoma uh, case was at the state level, but these other trials are at the federal level. 
have I got it right? Yes, that's right. And so the the so the state the states um, the states cases are each in their respective state courts. And then the, reason, the, the count- reason for that the reason Simon the reason for that is that a, a judge a federal judge in Ohio is handling at least this is what I understood Jr. to say a federal judge in Ohio is handling states or, or cases rather in many states, not just one, and that's why it's a prime candidate for federal relief rather than an individual state uh, pursuing a case. Am I correct, uh, J.R.? Yeah, you know, procedurally, to, 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 to dig into the, to the minutia of, of federal civil procedure a little bit, um, when you, you typically litigate a case in federal court when you have citizens of different states. And so, right. um, for for example, you might have a um, um, a, 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 a plaintiff who is a resident of Mississippi suing a um, defendant who is a resident of Louisiana. In 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 many cases, the appropriate venue would be a federal court rather than a state court of Mississippi. And so that's right. that's and- what's happened with these. Yeah, that's what's happened with these city and county suits is because there have been essentially lawsuits between and among citizens of different states, then those are appropriately tried in federal court, and then all of the federal cases are picked up and consolidated under the MDL procedure, the multi-district litigation procedure, in front of one judge to oversee all of the um, pretrial work. And just so just so everybody's, everybody's clear... The you mentioned the cost to the state and the cost to abate the crisis and the cost to handle uh, uh, from a from a government standpoint all the uh, costs of managing a medical crisis. But the MDL litigation, as I understand it, also uh, handles and is going to litigate the human cost here. Um, uh, a family loses their uh, overdose, their, their father, to an overdose of opioids. Uh, those people can get, no, can get an individual award. Is that correct? As could, as think- could somebody who was, uh, who's alive but harmed or addicted to opioids and needs to recover. There's a, there's a, individual cost to this that is going to be litigated as well. Is that correct? I'm sure there are those individual suits that are filed, Mark. The focus primarily of Judge Polster in the MDL courts has been on behalf of those counties and cities that have filed suit for the cost of of abating the problem. Um, So it's somewhat of a a trickle-down theory um, with the idea that the counties and the cities and the states uh, will obtain money for those treatment and for those those abatement costs to to help help those individuals. Got it. Uh, is, there will be, or there will be. I mentioned be I mentioned this very uh, beginning of the program, and um, we we never actually discussed it. Um, 
I, I look at this, and increasingly, I just see a replay of the big tobacco story. Okay, uh, tobacco wasn't uh, addictive. Tobacco didn't cause uh, cancer. And we all know how the story ended. It ended badly. Um, th this uh, opioid uh, crisis, um, I I'm still trying to wrap my head around how the uh, legal stuff is... Uh, it is unfolding. Um, clearly, the uh, Oklahoma case uh, is unlikely to uh, stand for very long. Uh, otherwise, um, it, it's just going to become chaos out there. Um, it, is this big tobacco uh, all over again? You know, it, it, it might be, Simon, it's probably too early to call it yet, but there, there are definitely similarities between that, uh, between Big Tobacco and in this case. Uh, many of the lawyers that were involved in Big Tobacco as attorneys general, um, like Mike Moore, who is the former uh, Mississippi attorney general, um, like Grant Woods, who is the former Arizona Attorney General, um, both of whom played key roles in the tobacco settlement, um, are also involved in this litigation, along with other lawyers that were involved with uh, tobacco, um, Joe Rice uh, being, being one who's a leader in this litigation, um, uh, Barron and Bud, Elizabeth Cabreza. There's, there's many lawyers that um, have that tobacco experience that are also leading the litigation here. And so, um, you know, you, 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 you see a lot of the same players. So I think that that's, that's positive because those lawyers were able to put together a resolution um, that, that has helped and, and really cut down on teen smoking in a dramatic fashion after the tobacco settlement. Um, <laughs> so that's one thing. The, the other thing that you, that you mentioned is the marketing that, was, that, that, that has now been proven, at least in the trial court in Oklahoma, that these companies um, conducted to really push the product. And that, I think, has some similarities with tobacco as well. Um, and so I think, yes, you're right to, to think that. There's certainly some very um, um, strong similarities. And then, you know, Tom will tell whether or not it's, it, 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 it proves to be the case or not. Jr., can we talk about that for a second? You uh, make that comparison. Um, uh, Simon mentioned uh, tobacco is not addictive. Lie. Um, tobacco doesn't cause cancer. Lie. What similar marketing claims were made by the opioid manufacturers that uh, Oklahoma proved? to be uh, maybe perhaps not outright lies, but uh, um, exaggerations or stretches of the truth? Well, you know, the, the judge in the Oklahoma case 
his quote was that J&J, their quote was, engaged in false and misleading marketing. And that um, as a result of that, um, that, that they were embarked on his quote, a major campaign of marketing that downplayed the addiction risk of prescription opioids. And then those companies trumpeted the concept of quote, pseudo addiction that was used to persuade doctors that patients who appeared hooked on opioids actually should be given more opioids for undertreated pain. Um, also, um, he said that J&J targeted government agencies with messages aimed at minimizing the dangers of narcotic painkillers, uh, pain and it paid a, quote, substantial amounts of money to pain advocacy groups that wielded influence over the physician's prescribing practices. And so, in summary, um, the judge wrote that, quote, defendant's opioid marketing in its multitude of forms was false deceptive and misleading. And so, you know, when you when you look at his findings of fact, so just as a way of background, they they, they had the trial in Oklahoma over 33 days, um, took in 42 witnesses, took in 187, I'm sorry, 100, let me start again, 874 exhibits into evidence, and then 225 court exhibits. Um, the judge wrote 58 paragraphs um, in his findings of fact, some of which I just read from, which took up half of his 42-page ruling. So he, this judge, you know, sat through, and th this this was the other interesting aspect of this trial is that it was a judge trial. So it wasn't tried to a jury; it was tried to a judge, <laughs> and this judge obviously. Um, um, from all reports, took copious notes and, and was attentive throughout the, the whole trial and came up with a 42-page ruling, uh, half of which were his findings of facts um, that, that found that these, that, that J&J &J at least, to, to quote him, um, was false, deceptive, and misleading. So, um, you know, that's, that's some pretty powerful facts that will probably bode well for other litigation. And around and around the country, the other litigation you're speaking of, um, Purdue and J&J &J are going to be the defendants, or are there other defendants as well? So, so generally, you can put the defendants into two different buckets. Um, one, one bucket is the manufacturing defendants. And so the manufacturing defendants are companies like J&J, &J, uh, Purdue Pharma, Teva, um, and so they're the they're the manufacturers of the makers of the drugs, and arguably engaged in these um, these advertising campaigns to either push the concept of pain management through these opioids and undersold the addictive nature of the drugs. So those those are the manufacturing defendants. The other large bucket of defendants are the distributor defendants. And the distributor defendants are companies like McKesson, Cardinal, Amerisource, Bergen, primarily those three. And what the distributors do, did was is they shipped the, the opioids 
Um, and so, you know, the first reaction is, is well, wait a minute. You know, I, I can understand the claim, right, against the manufacturers because they're the ones that, that, that manufactured the drugs and they're the ones that marketed it. So what's, what's, the, what's the claim against the distributors? Well, under the Controlled Substance Act, um, we have a closed system. Um, and so what that means is is that, you know, as, as, as we all know from common experience without having to read the law, you know, you just can't sell a controlled substance um, out of your out of your trunk or your car. Um, that's a that's a closed system to where it's tracked from the manufacturer to the distributor to the pharmacy to to the wholesaler to the pharmacy, and so each role in each each person in that uh, chain in that in that closed system has a duty to monitor where the drugs are going. And the arguments against the distributors is that you have such an enormous amount of opioids going into communities with such little population that they had a duty to, to, to um, investigate and they had a duty to um, uh, to essentially take part in the closed system to, to stop that type of distribution. So those are the two buckets of defendants, and that's generally the claim um, the, the claims against both. I don't, want to, I don't want to get too technical here, but is that like a respondeat superior argument, or is it are they liable because the manufacturer is liable and they're and they are and no. I think it's more of a to to use the legal term a negligence per se argument. Um, you, okay. you, know, you had a, you, you you had a statutory duty, and the violation of the statutory duty is is the negligence. Um, so 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 that's the claim. Now you know the, the 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 important point I think to make is is that the Oklahoma case was only against a manufacturer, and. Right. Uh, um, the, the 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 court there relied on Oklahoma's public nuisance statute um, yes, to find tell liability. Us about that. Well, it's, it's tell us about um, the nuisance. I thought that was kind of a unique uh, uh, decision by the prosecutors to pursue under that act, and I think that had a lot to do with uh, the positive result. Can you tell us about the nuisance statute and let the public understand what what a public nuisance is in lay terms. Yeah, so you know the best. I don't know, Mark. I think a good example of a of a of a public nuisance is, you know, you got a bar that blasts music into a neighborhood um, late at night, or you have some huge uh, agricultural industrial agricultural concern that causes there to be noxious odors uh, emanating through a neighborhood, or maybe some you know bad manufacturing plant that's that's kind of polluting the the environment. So, you know, that's 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 those are I think examples of nuisance that that we could think of. The law recognizes that you can't just do anything you want um and harm your neighbor, you know. You, you, and and so the law recognizes that in certain situations um if you create a nuisance, then you are responsible for the harm that is that 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 your nuisance nuisance causes you. The question in 
in the Oklahoma case was how broadly the Oklahoma nuisance statute could be applied. And so he he quotes the the actual statute and the way that it's defined in the Oklahoma statutes uh, says that nuisance consists in unlawfully doing an act or or omitting to perform a duty which act or omission annoys, injures, or endangers the comfort, repose, health, or safety of others, or in any way renders other persons insecure in life or in the use of property. Um, and so, um, you know, one Simon of the would say, dumb, Simon would say, "Dumb that down for me, please." Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, that I, I, I read the I read the nuisance. Uh, statute as it, as it was written, and so essentially, right. you know, what it says <laughs> is that it's it's you know nuisance as Oklahoma defines it is you know you're doing any act or or, or neglecting to do any act that annoys, injures, or in, or endangers um, someone else, and that that's that's a that's a um, a simplified reading of the statute, and so. What the question in Oklahoma turned on was whether or not it had to do with the um, um, use of property. So the um, um, the examples that I gave, I own a bar and I'm bl blaring music into the neighborhood. Well, I'm using my property, my bar, to blare music, or I own the huge industrial agricultural farm that's spreading noxious odors throughout the neighborhood. I'm using my property to do that. Or, um, or you know, I'm, 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 I'm making some, you know, bad, um, um, bad chemical and, it's, and it's, it's going into the neighborhood. In those situations, I'm using my property to, to essentially harm your property um, or, to, or to harm you. And so the question in Oklahoma was, and the defendants argued, well, that statute has never been applied in any situation but for use of property. And so uh, the judge said, no, I don't read it. I don't read it that narrowly. I read the statute very broadly um, to where what you did by manufacturing and selling these drugs in, into the communities in Oklahoma, um, that was a nuisance, and therefore you have to pay for the nuisance. But then the judge also backed up and he said, look, even if um, the, the, the Oklahoma nuisance law requires the use of property, he said the state showed that J&J uh, &J used property, public and private, um, as well as the public roads, the buildings and lands of, state, of the state of Oklahoma to create the nuisance. And, and then he went, he went through and said, you know, the sales representatives were trained in their Oklahoma homes how to spread the defendant's marketing message. They conducted their, their marketing efforts in doctors' offices and hospitals and restaurants in Oklahoma. They used company cars traveling the state and county roads. So the judge went through and said um, the, the, the statute is not as broad uh, – I'm sorry, is not as narrow as J&J &J argues – you do not have to use property, but if you do, here's all the different ways that J&J &J used property, public and private, in Oklahoma to spread the message and to cause the nuisance. So it was a, 
and it was a it was a unique issue. Something that 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 is interesting about that too, though, Mark and and Simon, is that uh, the state of North Carolina, I'm sorry, the state of North Dakota, sued um, um, manufacturers and argued um, uh, under North Dakota's nuisance law, and a North Dakota judge ruled that the nuisance statute did not apply to those claims. So I, I, have, obvious- I have read I, I've read a number of uh, articles uh, on the um, Oklahoma uh, ruling, and um, more often than not, I uh, get the uh, or, or I read someone's opinion that uh, on appeal it will get overturned because they use the uh, nuisance statute and uh, it it just won't hold up. Um, um, Am I reading all the wrong people? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't don't know what fake news is and what fake news isn't anymore, so um, I I can't say, but um, certainly, J and J says that their main focus is going to be the judge's interpretation of the nuisance statute because that's what everything uh, turns on. And um, you know, the judge obviously uh, did not agree with J and J on that point. And 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 it will be interesting too that you know the the, the judge. Um, um, Understandably and, and wisely said it, you know, the nuisance statute does not require the use of property. But if it does, here's how they used property um, to, to to form this nuisance, to make this nuisance. So you could see a appellate court say, well, the judge got it wrong. It does require use of property, but he showed how they did use property. So um, would would that still allow the verdict to be or the judgment to be affirmed? I don't know, but you know, um, I think that the state has a good argument that you know that, that the judge did a good job of applying the law. The judge was right on the law, and if the judge was wrong on the law, that he made some factual findings that showed how property was used, and therefore it should still be the, the judgment should still stand. How many okay. of our states? I'm, I'm going to change gears. Oh, yeah. right, I'm going to change gears I have just a little bit. I have one follow-up question. One follow-up question yep. first, Simon. How many states have, uh, in, in the country have nuisance statutes like the Oklahoma statute? I don't, I don't know, do Mark. Know? I know that, that most states do have nuisance um, statutes, but I don't know the number of of, of, of Similar, I believe that the North Dakota, North Dakota statute was identical to the Oklahoma statute. And so going, there, forward, going forward, going forward, we're going to have a a controversy over which state got it right. Correct? Right. You, you very well could. And and, and what okay. judge got it right? Because if the because if the if the Oklahoma and North Dakota statutes are the same, then obviously the two judges arrived at, at two different opinions on whether or not property was required. Right. right. Use of property. Go ahead, Simon. Go ahead, Simon. Okay. Uh, another um, 
thing that is just nagging at, at the back of my mind. Um, we, we've heard that um, these uh, lawsuits broadly target two groups. The manufacturers, yep, I can understand that, and the distributors. And, uh, yeah, I, I can kind of sort of understand that. But there has been absolutely no mention of the obvious third group, the people prescribing them, the doctors. I, I know it was mentioned in the Oklahoma uh, suit, but it just seemed to uh, get brushed off. Um, do doctors yeah. in any way uh, share liability? Um, I'll answer it like a good lawyer will. It depends, and and <laughs> and by that and and by that I mean there there are certainly some bad actors out there, Simon. You know there there are some pill pushers. There 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 were horrible pill mills in Florida that got cracked down on. Um, yeah, you know, so there are there's some yeah there's there are some bad actors out there who wear a white coat and have an MD after their name, but the vast majority of doctors care about their patients and try to do the right thing, and they are not interested in doing anything that would harm their patient and that would um, cause their pa patients to become addicted. And the doctors are dependent somewhat on being fed and being provided good information and fair information. And when you have companies that target doctors with, with, with efforts and campaigns to convince the doctors that to appropriately treat their patients, their patients should not have pain, and to ensure that they don't have pain, they should be able to prescribe them this medicine, and then tell those doctors, don't worry about addiction because this stuff isn't going to um, um, have them addicted, and this is better than alternatives. Well, the, the doctor's a victim in that situation um, as well, you know, certainly not to the extent that the addicted person is a victim, but the doctor has been hoodwinked as well. So, you know, um, yes, are there bad doctors out there? Yes. Should they go to jail? Absolutely. But, but that's that's a fraction of the doctors, not 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 most of them. And you know, and, and I've spoken to friends uh, who are physicians, and and they tell they they tell the story. They tell the story just like the lawyers tell the story. Is that Pain um, was was you know began to be taught as something that was um, inappropriate for your patient to experience, and um, you know a lot of lot of interesting social uh, commentary that could probably be made about our about our 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 our, our society now about how you know none of us want pain for anything, um, but. You know, friends. You know, of course, that's anecdotal. You know, just just friends talking. But you know, if if you speak to doctors about this time period and about the messages that they, that they were receiving, 
it's it all is true and and the industry made a point of 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 pushing these drugs to relieve patient pain and um and you know we believe did so in an inappropriate way with drugs that should have never been uh, used for the common pain that they that they were used for the 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 toothache like i said at the beginning of the show right. <laughs> so i i want to go back to um a, a phrase you used earlier and try and get uh try and get to uh wrap my head around its actual meaning pseudo addiction i mean i really like it He's a wordsmith. Yeah, no, no. Look, that, 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 that. I wish I could take credit, but no, that was the, um, that was a quote from the, from the, um, the ruling of the court, in which he talked about the defendant's um, argument that, that it was not truly, if, if, essentially, what that means, Simon. And the way that the defendants used it was that it was not a true addiction, um, that it was, quote, pseudo-addiction, and that that showed that the patient was actually in pain and should be prescribed more opioids, not less. And so that was, that was one of the findings, uh, that was one of the findings of the court. Oh, my. Excuse me while I have a giggle. (laughs) By the the way, getting back back to, while Simon controls himself, getting back to the doctors, um, just so the public can can understand, I think we're talking about two different types of liability if a doctor is a, quote, pill mill, unquote. As J.R. described, we're looking at a doctor facing criminal liability like the doctor in Florida that was uh, featured in the 60 Minutes piece, but uh, an individual addicted uh, person could also sue the doctor in what most people are familiar with, a malpractice suit for uh, over-prescribing drugs he knew to be addictive. Um, And and that's at least uh, a, a potential uh, individual claim that uh, a person might have, but only if the doctor is in that class of people that uh, knew he was prescribing something that uh, should have been, been prescribed in the quantities he was prescribing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a that's a different different uh, a different, different claim. Genre. Different. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. By the way, speaking of, of, of that, uh, I read that the that the um, prosecutors in Oklahoma were seeking some seventeen billion dollars in this litigation uh, and got uh, five hundred and seventy-two million or something like that. Uh, that's a far cry from seventeen billion. Um, in the in the business of practicing law. We talk about blackboarding damages. You put damages on a on a uh, 
some kind of graphic and you show the judge the real cost of uh, this crisis and the judge came up with 572 as opposed to 17 billion. Uh, can you tell us why that happened and what these damages were calculated on? <laughs> Mark, Mark, even I know the answer to that question, but I'll leave it to the expert. <laughs> well, what what happened actually was that the um, um, the court went through all of the different um, elements of damages and what it would take to abate the problem. And the, 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 the number for um, year one was the $572,102,028. And um, he, his next quote was, and, and I'm reading from, from uh, paragraph 60, he says, though several of the state's witnesses testify that the plan, quote, will take at least 20 years to work, the state did not present sufficient evidence of the amount of time and cost necessary beyond year one to abate the opioid crisis. So the 572 was one year of treatment for a state of 4 million people. Um, and so the court there ruled that, well, the, there wasn't enough evidence, there wasn't enough proof made that, um, you know, you, you need more than, more than year one. So that was the reason for the 572 rather than a, a larger number. So what if they if if uh, if a year goes by and it's not abated, they do it all over again? Well, I don't know. I, yeah. I guess that raises all kinds of interesting issues um, about the trial and everything else, and what was proven at the trial, and whether they can go back. But I think it's certainly a roadmap for future trials to get that bit of evidence in that this is what it's going to take for year one. And then as we start to clean up the problem, this is how many years uh, it will take, and this is what we'll have going forward over a you know, 10- or 20-year period. By the way, according one, to my watch, we only have, one, we only have 10 minutes left. Uh, one thing we didn't cover is what is your involvement in this litigation? And tell, tell the people what you're about. Who's J.R. Whaley? Okay, I'll I'll do it, but just just to 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 close the loop there on the damages, because um, I think it 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 merits some some comment. You know, it was five hundred and seventy-two million dollars for one year in Oklahoma with four million um, uh, four million residents. An expert right. in the MDL that we talked about earlier estimated that it's four hundred and eighty billion dollars. To abate the crisis nationwide. Um, so, you know, again, it's a it's a national crisis that's going to have to have a national um, um, result to it. So it's uh, it's unfortunate. But to answer your question, I appreciate it. Um, I'm I'm a lawyer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've been involved in um, national litigation uh, pretty much my entire practice cases throughout the country with. Um, uh, you know, multi-party litigation, uh, whether that takes the class actions or uh, financial injury um, um, on behalf of governments or, or farmers or 
other entities like that, and then also involved in serious injury and death cases. Um, in the opioid crisis, along with a, 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 a group of other lawyers, represent a no number of counties and cities throughout the country, as well as uh, risk funds and unions and hospitals. So have been involved in, in representing those entities for, um, you know, from the beginning of the litigation, really. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're all touched in one way or the other um, by, by substance abuse and by, by addiction, uh, whether it's people in our families or friends or our family of friends. And it's, I think, um, you know, a, a righteous fight to, for lawyers to be in. We um, sometimes get a bad rap about uh, about um, litigation, and um, there's there's too much litigation, and there's not uh, merit, merit, meritorious litigation. And you know, I think, look, in fairness, um, there's there's some truth to some of those arguments, um, but. This isn't one of those cases by any stretch of the imagination. This is a this is a huge problem that these corporations caused, continue to cause, and have made billions of dollars off of. And it's 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 a national crisis that needs a, a national solution. This brings us back full circle to where we started. You 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 mentioned that in the beginning that it didn't matter. It doesn't matter what political affiliation you have, whether you're uh, a red state or a blue state, uh, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, uh, this touches everybody. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the few pieces of litigation that it seems knows no political boundaries. Everybody's on board. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. I mean, we have a, you know, Republican attorney general and a Democratic governor in Louisiana, and they agree that this is the right litigation for the state of Louisiana. You've got uh, Republican attorneys general and Republican governors um, uh, with Democratic attorney generals and Democratic uh, uh, governors. So it, it, it really is. And, and to really bring it back home, Mark and Simon, you know, at the beginning of, the, of our conversation when we were talking about the, the scope of the problem, I said, you know, 115 people a day die. Well, that, that breaks down to four to five people an hour. So during the time that we've been speaking, four to five people in our country died from from opioid um, overdose and so um, you know every time I break that down into a segment whether it's a 15 minute segment or a, uh, an hour segment it really brings it home on how devastating this this epidemic is if people have questions for you how do they get a hold of you Sure. My website is www.whaleylaw, and Whaley is spelled W-H-A-L-E-Y. So it's www.whaleylaw.com. 
www.whaleylaw.com, whaleylaw.com, and all my contact information is there, and be happy to, to visit with anybody about it. Okay, this Brother, would seem a, like a, a absolutely not. <laughs> Mark, you don't know me Go well ahead. enough. <laughs> but this would be a great time for some uh, some more um, gratuitous, and I do mean uh, absolutely gratuitous advertising. Mark, tell us about your books yes, and where people can buy them. <laughs> well, I, I've written uh, three published legal thrillers, The Trail of Faith, the Trail of Justice, The Trail in Blue. They're available at markmbello.com, www.markmbello.com. Bello is B-E-L-L-O. Uh, the books are uh, about individual cases, not the kind of mess uh, uh, litigation, uh, MDL as they call it, litigation that JR is involved in. Uh, I, I'm one of the first people to sue the Catholic Church for um, clergy abuse, and uh, the first book, The Trail of Faith, is about is loosely based on the case I handled back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the second book, The Trail of Justice, is about a bigoted president uh, and uh, a Muslim <laughs> ban and a Muslim woman who is falsely accused of murder and the president uh, being involved in making sure she gets convicted even though she's innocent. Um, the third book is kind of a follow-up to the second. Uh, it involves a white supremacist who uh, tries to poison uh, the city of Dearborn, Michigan using sarin gas. He's chased to a northern Michigan town by uh, a hero cop who uh, was one of the heroes in book two, and uh, the hero cop finds himself on trial for murder in the uh, northern Michigan town that he chases the terrorists to. So uh, they're a little different fare than the kind of stuff J.R. talked about tonight. But uh, the average lawyer um, finds himself handling individual civil cases for people, individual criminal cases for people. And my hero lawyer, Zachary Blake, uh, um, finds himself doing those two things. Uh, for people who like uh, Steve Martini, John Grissom, um, Richard North Patterson, uh, Linda Fairstein. Uh, people who like legal thrillers will love my books. And, and thank you for I, I will attest. <laughs> I, I will attest to that. <laughs> Mark is a damn fine writer. Um, so, Mark, you, you thought we were just about out of time. Boy, have I got a surprise for you. Uh, I'm looking wait. at the uh, clock, and we've got 30 minutes and four seconds left. We're going an hour and a half today? 
Yeah, I think so. I I rather like this. Uh, I, I I like this subject. So if it's okay with you, gentlemen, I I vote we uh, continue. Um, sure, JR. Yeah, sure. JR, um, we've asked you uh, a number of questions. I'm sure we haven't asked a question that you wish we would have. What's the question and what's the answer? Well, there's a there's a lot of interesting um, issues going on in this case um, because of its complexity and because of how how um, massive it really is. And one of the things that the leadership has asked for, when I say leadership, the the MDL, the multi-district litigation um, judge, appoints lawyers to lead the case. And uh, are you one of those lawyers? He's no, I'm not. He's appointed a fine group of of really stellar, some of the best lawyers in the country, okay. who are. Um, who are leading the case. And one of the things that they've done, which folks, uh, you know, I, I think two things to, to be on the lookout for um, that should be coming down the pike pretty, pretty soon. Um, one is that the, the, the lawyers, the leadership have asked the court to certify a negotiation class. We've all gotten cards or, or, or emails saying that we were, we were, we were part of a class. We we're part of a class action. Um, and so generally we know what that means. But these cases are unique. They're, they're all filed separately. There's about 2,000, if not, there's more than 2,000 individual lawsuits on behalf of individual governmental entities that have been filed and have been consolidated in front of Judge Polster um, in Ohio. And um, uh, so you can imagine the disparate um, – Interests in a sense that you know you, you got a lot of lawyers, you got a lot of entities, you got a lot of lot of folks, um, you know, trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And what the leadership uh, has done is ask for a negotiation class to be certified. And it's really a unique animal that has never been done before. And a lot of folks are watching exactly how it happens. Typically, in a class action. What you do is is you have a litigation class or you have a settlement class, and so the litigation class um, under the rules of civil procedure have to satisfy certain certain issues as well as an, as well as a settlement class. Um, there are just certain factors that a class action has to meet to actually be certified mm -hmm. as a class. And one of the interesting things is is that the leadership has asked for a negotiation class for the sole purpose of negotiating with the defendants for a global resolution. Oftentimes in cases like this, you can understand if you're a defendant, if you settle, you want to be done with it, right? You don't want to settle with some of the parties and then have others still uh, litigating with you. So understandably, the defendants want some type of global resolution. Um, and then, you know, um, the the rules on how it would how it be set up are pretty unique as well. 
Um, the proposal is, is that if there were a settlement, 75% would have to agree to it, and there'd be some, some allocation of populations and things of that nature. So it's, it's a very unique situation that has, um, that has been proposed. Judge Polster had a hearing about it. He appointed interim counsel, and so that's something that you might see in the news soon about um, a negotiation class on behalf of the that city, be, and that would be on behalf of the cities and counties. That would be an enormous amount of money, would it not? I would, I would think so. I would think so. And 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 that's the other thing, Mark, about the ability of some defendants to um, to pay, um, you know, really what it would cost to fix. Um, you know, some of these defendants just don't, while they're multi-billion dollar companies, um, you know, they, they, may, they may not be large enough to withstand some of this, uh, um, you know, judgments like this and or actually pay for a full, full settlement. Um, which which kind of leads to the next thing that you will see um, in the in the papers um, in the internet uh, uh, likely soon is Purdue Pharma, um, according to published reports, is in settlement negotiations with the states and the cities and counties to uh, try to resolve um, all claims against Purdue Pharma. Um, according to the published reports, um, Purdue Pharma, as well as uh, its owners, the Sackler family, um, have offered in between 10 to 12 billion dollars to resolve uh, all claims against uh, Purdue and the Sackler family. Um, the Sackler. Actually, owners, I, I believe also the, uh, the the Sacklers have also offered to. Uh, just walk away from the business. You know, they don't want anything more to do with uh, Purdue Pharma. Yeah, that I, I, my understanding of of how it's been reported is is that that would be part of the agreement is that the Sacklers would no longer be involved with um, with Purdue Pharma and and perhaps some of Purdue Pharma's subsidiaries or other companies. That the Sacklers might own. So um, didn't I read? Didn't I read that that involved the Chapter 13 as well? Um, it, it 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 might. Um, from those reports, it seems like it would be a settlement in which um, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma would put up a certain amount of money, and then Purdue Pharma would go through some type of bankruptcy organization where a trust would be developed so that uh, the profits of the company would then be used to fund abatement programs. I'd like to hop on, on uh, Simon's question and ask the question I've been trying to ask. Uh, we touched on it, but I, I, I'm not satisfied. Since I'm a little confused, I think maybe the public is too, and that is what does an individual family do uh, in, uh, they've got an addicted loved one that they have to care for. They've got an addict. They've got an addicted uh, deceased uh, breadwinner, and now they have to carry on without him. What does an individual family do about 
the deceptive behavior of these two manufacturers and these distributors outside of uh, these government actions that are being taken by states and counties all over the country. How does an individual obtain damages from these defendants? The I think the question that that would be relevant to that is um, you know the the proof of the addiction and proof of um, kind of the uh, the downward spiral really for lack of a better term so what I would think that a a a plaintiff would want to be able to show is that um, previous to a prescription for one of these opioids they did not have any type of um, addiction ongoing, that following the prescription, um, they got hooked, and then it was, a, you know, a, a somewhat of a down, down, downward spiral by then. By then. Um, there are a lot of um, documents in the public record now. There's a lot of factual findings based on the Oklahoma ruling. I think in the October trial in the MDL, there will likewise be a great amount of, of evidence that shows the, the marketing efforts by the manufacturers and also the um, acts of the distributors of being aware that huge amounts of opioids were going into certain areas and not doing anything about them. So, um, what 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 I think the the element of proof would be um, is 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 kind of following that um, uh, you know to show that the addiction was caused by the by the opioids. The other claim that I think it has merit is the idea that you know opioids really were initially approved for palliative end of life care. Um, and that they should have never been prescribed and should have never been used for the carpenter who throws his back out by lifting a two-by-four or the high school cheerleader who, you know, uh, uh, tore her Achilles tendon in a jump or the basketball player from, you know, JUCO who sprained his ankle. And, you know, those are, those are real-life examples of people who, be who became hooked. And so, you know, I think those those folks do have claims, Mark. Um, I think the proof of those claims, the the attack by the defendants is, you know, oh well, um, they were addicted to alcohol before they started, or they, you know, they, they, so so that individual causation will is what it'll turn on. Um, <coughs> you there's, you there's said nothing, something about the really federal, curious. About the federal, go ahead. Go ahead, Simon. I'm sorry. You, you said something really curious. Um, initially, initially, they were for uh, palliative care. Um, is, yeah. is that in black and white? Because boy, that that sounds like you know a, a death knell for uh, um, any lawsuit going forward. Yes, yes. There's, 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 
there's evidence that the initial approval of this was not for everyday pain um, that it was ultimately prescribed for. And, and that was cancer-related. Yeah, it was cancer-related. Because, look, at the end of the day, you know, all of those of us who've seen loved ones uh, in that end-of-life um, stage, you know, you just want to – it doesn't matter if they're, if they're addicted at the end of their life to uh, morphine or opioids. Uh, you're trying to provide that palliative care. And, um, you know, the, the change that occurred um, was this marketing – efforts to change from a, um, you know, rare end-of-life cancer-related palliative care to, you know, you go to the dentist and you get a tooth tooth pulled or something happens and you get a 30-day supply of, of oxycodone. Where does the uh, FDA uh, stand in all of this? Well, the um, one of the interesting things that that has come out from this is the is the Arcos data, A R C O S, um, and the Arcos data is um, from the DEA, I believe, and they have shown where the prescriptions went, and so it's a very interesting bit of government data. That shows um, that shows you know really the prescriptions and where they went and and part of that is the part of that makes up the claim against the main, against the distributing defendants that if you have uh, pills just being dumped into small West Virginia towns with you know nothing for a population then that Arcos data has helped prove exactly where it is um, in regard to the FDA. Um, you know, I think those of us who've been involved in litigation like this, you know, know that unfortunately um, our governmental agencies don't do a good enough job sometimes of 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 protecting um, protecting consumers. Can can we expand on that a little bit? Uh, the the drug is the drug is brought before the FDA for approval. It's approved, let's say, for a prescription to um, uh, people who are uh, in near-death situations. How does the FDA know that it starts being prescribed more broadly uh, and starts being used by the basketball player with the sprained ankle. How could the FDA know that? Well, you know, without getting into all of the FDA regulatory and, and approval process, the, um, you know, generally the drug companies can obtain approval for a certain use and then expand on that um, later. Um, um, and 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 so you know some of it is off-label use, but then also um, you know as as the court in Oklahoma has said is that you know after about 96, the uh, 
pharmaceutical industry started targeting uh, primary care physicians with their marketing efforts to convince the doctors to prescribe opioids for, for chronic non-cancer pain. And so, again, um, I'm, not, I'm not familiar exactly with all the regulatory approvals and what was, what was approved when. I don't have that um, knowledge to memory, but the, um, um, you know, the, the efforts have, expanded. Would they have been required to go to the FDA to get that expansive uh, prescription right? I, I believe that they would, but but I'm not positive about that, Mark. Uh, nor am I. I nor am I. Okay. I can't speak to that. Interesting question, though. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, I have a question. Um, my wife is one? not hooked on on opioids. Um, she's old and cranky and um, <laughs> seems to be on every medication known to man. Um, and uh, she's disabled. Are we married? So, uh, you know, the state gives her a, a bit of a break. They uh, don't charge her for the uh, first five drugs of the uh, month. Um but everything after that uh, she gets charged for. Um, when, when you talk about opioids, um, they, they uh, sell for big money on the street. So I, I can't believe there are, you know, a four-dollar uh, copay at uh, Walmart. Where on earth do these people? get the money to buy the drugs. Well, unfortunately, what happened in this situation was is that oftentimes what you'll what you'll see Simon is you'll see the carpenter who pulls his back out. Um and then, you know, he gets the prescription for opioids and his insurance is paying um for it and then he continues to get prescribed and he continues um, to have this chronic pain and so he becomes hooked on it. And then um, the kind of the, the slide becomes then, you know, he, he, he's seeking it from doctors for um, via prescription and then the next step is, is you buy it um, from a friend or you buy it from a, um, um, a, an acquaintance or you steal it from grandma's um, 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 medicine cabinet. <coughs> and then, unfortunately, the next step is is you go to the black market to buy it. And then sometimes what happens is is that, you know, you, you can't buy the opioids anymore, and so you move to uh, street drugs like heroin and, uh, and or fentanyl. So that's unfortunately the slide that you see oftentimes with addicts is that they've, um, you know, they, they started um, with a prescription from a doctor for a very legitimate um, reason. Hmm. Um, here's a, a, a useless piece of information. I can't remember where I picked it up from, 
Um, but I've, I've known it for years. The difference between opioids and opiates. Um, an opioid is man-made. An opiate is occurring in nature with a little bit of refinery. Um, did you know that? Yes, yes, and we often use them interchangeably, but yes, you're right. <laughs> so, anyway, JR, you, JR, you, mentioned, you, mentioned, you mentioned that, that um, they started out with a, quote, legitimate prescription. That seems to run contrary to the uh, statement that the drug shouldn't have been prescribed. Yeah. To somebody and with an average, with the go ahead. Right. Yeah. No. 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 You're right. You're, you're you're right. Um, thank you for that clarification. What I meant was is that the patient thought it was legitimate. You know, the patient is going to their doctor. The the patient's not an addict. The patient's not drug seeking. The patient's going for a legitimate complaint. The carpenter throwing out his back example. Um, and so um, that's unfortunately how a lot of these addictions have begun. Um, and so, yes, you're right. But, again, in that situation, the doctor thought it was legitimate too. Um, right. The doctor because, prescribed the wrong drug for the, the, the right, right. The, the wrong drug for the right reason. Right. And had, <laughs> and had been, you know, had been the, the, the um, yes. So, anyway. I hear you. I hear you. Interesting. Okay. If you look at a, a map of the uh, U.S. and um, you, you look at the uh, places where opioids are uh, the biggest uh, blight, what, why are those particular states um, the, the ones that, that have the problem. Ohio, uh, yeah. West Virginia. I, I obviously I I can't speak on the societal things. I can tell you what I've learned what I've learned and what I think and what I've heard people talk about. Um is that A, you have a lot of uh working class folks in those areas that use their body to make a living. And so they get hurt um, um, by using their body to make a living. And that's, again, the cycle that we talked about that kind of uh, started it. And so you've got, you know, yeah, you, you know, you have that West Virginia and you've got the Ohio. Um, and so, you know, in, in Kentucky and, and those areas. So I've heard some people say, well, that's that's kind of a cause. Um and then, you know, you get to the addiction issues, and unfortunately, um, you know, oftentimes when you have a lack of economic opportunity, um, you see higher rates of addiction. So are those two things related where, where, you, where you get there? Um, so I, I personally think based on my experience that that might be a reason why you see such high rates and and in particular Simon you know you 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 talk about those um really some underpopulated areas 
and this is where the, 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 the claim comes in against the distributors, is that, you know, there are small towns in, in West Virginia and rural Ohio that were just receiving millions of pills for populations of four or five, 6,000 uh, people. It, it makes me very sad. I mean, um, why very would... <laughs> yeah, well, that too. Um, you know, why would society allow this to go on and on and on? You know, um, money, it, it money, money. Be... I want the money. It's a rich man's world. Aha! <laughs> I mean, it, it must have been um, obvious to someone in the supply chain, you know, a, 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 a town of 10,000 people doesn't need 30,000 oxycodons. <laughs> apparently JR would you tell Simon what size companies Purdue and J and uh Johnson and Johnson are? Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're billion dollar uh companies. Uh Purdue Pharma multi multi billion. Multi billion. Yeah. 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 Does that answer uh, your question, Simon? <laughs> and car and look and you know the the distributors, the, you know McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, and Cardinal are huge corporations that you've never heard of before. I mean they're 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 top twenty five Fortune you know Fortune companies, um, huge companies, and so um, you know there's there's just billions of dollars that are that that were that were made distributing and manufacturing these drugs. Mm. It, it blows my mind. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I'm looking at, I may, I may sound cynical, but I'm telling you, that's what it's about. It's about the money. Oh, everything's about the stinking money. And that, that's what makes me, uh, the most grumpiest. Um, it, it's not about yeah. health. <laughs> you know, it's about the mighty dollar. Um, okay, I'm, Mc, I'm McKes- McKesson is Mc, McKesson is number seven on the Fortune 500 list, and Amerisource Bergen is number ten on the Fortune 500 list. So I'm um, going that to just look gives, them up. Yeah, I I can honestly say I had never heard of them (laughs) before today. (laughs) Yeah, large corporations that no one has ever heard of. Okay, back to the plot. Um, I'm looking at the clock, and uh, we've got about uh, two minutes left. So here's what I propose. Um, a quick once round the table. I, I'm going to start with uh, JR, 
because you're our guest, so you get to go first. Give us your uh, parting words of wisdom, and I do hope you will come back again in the future. Well, hopefully I can come back in the future and share good news that there's been resolution uh, on behalf of the states and the counties and the cities and that the country is beginning to uh, cure the opioid problem. So I hope that I can I can come back and share that good news. You know, I think, um, you know, not to be not to be uh, uh, dark, um, but, you know, the human cost of this is is astronomical and you know we've been speaking for another 30 minutes so um, you know two or three people have died since since we've gone through our our extended um, conversation for an extra 30 minutes and so I would encourage the listeners to really pay attention and most importantly as citizens if there is a settlement ensure that the monies that are obtained in any settlement are used for the identification and treatment of addicts in a evidence-based way and that the money doesn't get sucked up into some general fund and is used to fix potholes. So what I'd encourage the listeners to do is pay attention and keep the uh, politicians hands out of the cookie jar and make sure that the monies used go for the purpose that, that it's intended to. Good luck with that. <laughs> and Mark, you, your, uh, your parting thoughts. Well, you know, it, it, I, I was going somewhere else, but I, but Gary just triggered a, a, a kind of a thought I, I have. And um, I'd like people to understand that when they walk into a doctor's office or or, or a, a hospital and they're in pain, there's a, there's you know I, I don't know that there's a formal patient's bill of rights, but they're a customer. Somebody's trying to provide a service or a product to them, and they have a right to ask questions. And I don't think people ought to let doctors or hospitals shove pills down their throat without asking what they're taking and what it does to you. And I think one of the messages that we should get from JR's dark message that some seven or eight people have passed away in the last hour and a half is ask questions. Don't just let people tell you what to do with your body. Question these things. If, if if someone prescribes you something, ask them what it does. Ask them what effect it has on your body. Ask them if, uh, if there's been any litigation over this particular medication. I don't know. J.R., you're involved in this much more than I am, but I, I just – it seems to me you, work, you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you a prescription, and you fill it. And nobody ever says, what is this and why am I taking it? And it's, I think that has something to do with this issue as well. I'm not saying don't trust your doctor. I'm just saying don't just take everything on faith. All right. 
Okay. I, I don't know. That's just a, that's just a, a as you as you indicated, Simon, kind of a final thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, everyone, this is Simon Barrett. I, I have had more fun this evening than I don't know what. Um, this has been a great program. I, I want to thank uh, Mark Bellow and J.R. Whaley. You gentlemen really know how to uh, perk up my interest level. So uh, I do hope that um, everyone will have a happy, uh, healthy, safe week. Um, Mark and I will be back again next Monday with another program. What will it be about? Who knows? Till then, goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, Simon.